I'm Michaela Pogner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. When was the last time you took a soil sample deeper than 12 inches? Ray Weil, a soil scientist at the University of Maryland, says by only analyzing a foot of your soil, you're only seeing a snapshot of the available nutrients in the topsoil. Ray and his students took soil samples down to seven feet deep at several dozen mid-Atlantic region farm fields. They wanted to find out how cover crops benefit soil nutrient levels from the topsoil down. In today's episode, we're sitting in on Wiles' presentation about his research. He explains how cover crops influence nutrient profiles, optimal planting dates for cover crops, and how well different kinds of cover crops can penetrate dense, compacted soils. Let's listen in. I apologize for the pun in the title. (laughs) Digging deeper, I actually mean that in both ways. Get into some some details in cover crops, but also going to focus on deeper parts of the soil than we usually look at. I think uh, most of you usually dig up the shovel is probably the best tool you have. I hope you keep one with you. Some kind I got one of those fold up combat shovels, you know, foxhole shovels. I keep it in my car or the toolbox. Uh, It's always good to look at your soil, but we're going to be going a little bit deeper than the top few inches that you usually dig up. When you think about it, you know, we're growing corn or soybeans, that corn plant is really only doing stuff in the soil for a few months of the year. It's not very long. It's really June before you have much root, root growth in there and the field's turning green and you're capturing sunlight and you're putting carbon in, you're capturing. <laughs> and by the end of August, those roots are about finished. They're dying, your plants are starting to senesce and you're going to go through a, a you know, maturity and dry down. So three years, you're paying rent for 12, 12 months, but only really is your crop doing something with the resources for three months. So cover crops enable you to get the other nine months worth of value out of your rent or out of, uh, out of the land. So that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so important. The other thing cover crops do that I like to think about is it, it lets you freeze you up from the market of having to sell what you grow. Because if you have to sell it, there's not a whole lot that you can haul to town in 20-ton trucks and sell, right? You're pretty limited. Just a few crops that your local grain elevator is going to buy. But if you don't have to sell it, if you're growing it for the soil and you're going to kill it, man, can you have a good time. You can really bring diversity in. You can try all kinds of stuff. You can grow things you never thought you'd, you'd grow on your farm. And, that, and I've seen so much of this, and it's, it's really making farming fun again. That's it's. That's one of the big lessons that come, come in here. Uh, you've been to other farm meetings. You probably remember what they were like 10 years ago and, and, and what a lot of the conventional farm. And it's, all, it's kind of a downer. It's all long litany of problems. But you come here to the no-till group and the cover crop group, and you realize it's just a whole litany of challenges and what we're doing, and everybody's trying something new and, and sharing all of this. So, so there's all these different things. And when you start putting cover crops into no-till, and originally cover crops were in no-till, 
uh, there's actually, I got a kick out of this, uh, was at the museum, it's fun to take a walk through that and you look at the history of it. And back when I was a graduate student, when I first did my first no-till, and I think that was in the early 1970s. And cover crops were a big part of it back then. They sort of fell by the wayside. Uh, I was talking to a farmer from Kentucky. They used cover crops in Kentucky in the 70s in, in no-till when it started out. We did it in Maryland. But by the end of the 70s, early 80s, they were falling out and people just didn't, I don't think there was anybody pushing it. And it was just easier to skip it. Uh, so putting no cover crops back into no-till is gonna change everything in the system. So I'm, I imagine all of you've got cover crops on most of your land. And you know how that is changing everything in the system. So this is a complicated diagram, but you could follow any of these boxes and just think about what's the impact of planting that cover crop in there on your system, on your profitability, on how you manage things and what it does to your soil. So I'm focusing on the soil, soil scientist. So let's say you have a cover crop that's got a taproot and it's doing some bio drilling. It's, it's making these uh, pathways for other roots. You know, it's also providing, it's also providing cover. All that's gonna to come together and increase the amount of water into the soil that's gonna increase crop growth. There's other paths you could follow in terms of feeding the food web and feeding the biology. So all these things are interconnected. So I'll let you ponder that uh, some other time. What I wanna talk about today is what's going on a little bit deeper in the soil. And this was a, uh, an interesting uh, paper that came out about 10 years ago, you know, for, <laughs> The 80s and 90s, the NRCS was promoting no-till as a way of putting a lot of extra carbon into the soil. And I think it does do that, but not quite the way we thought it did. Because we were making our measurements at the normal place where we take soil samples. Dig up a shovel full, take a probe, uh, top six, eight inches, and actually even six or eight inches. If you really want to see what no-till is doing, you want to just take a one-inch or two-inch sample. Because that's where things are happening, right under that residue mulch and, and where the cover, cover crop mulch is. Well, they were looking at the, all these studies around the world that had compared tillage to no tillage and how that increases soil organic matter or soil organic carbon. And every one of these studies was just looking at the top foot. These are, these are foot markings here. And that's a, a, a tracing of actual corn root system. Now, that's not what your corn root system looks like, is it? If you look at the data on that, that, that was from a, a, a great old book, if you can dig it. I think it's got it's scanned and online. Weaver did these incredibly difficult uh, pits where he looked at crop roots back in 1920s. And he published them in 1929. That's what old-fashioned corn roots used to look like, all spread out like that. Now they're growing down deep in modern hybrids. The last decade or so, they've been growing real, real deep. And I think that actually has an impact as to how they how they're able to get nitrogen or, or maybe miss some of the nitrogen. So you can see that angle has really changed. That's one of the things that's happened in the last 10, 15 years in, in, in corn hybrids. So it turns out that no-till may not be putting more carbon into the soil than conventional tillage. But most of that research also didn't include cover crops. Cover crops make a difference. But just the no-till by itself may just be moving the carbon around. And I think that's what we found out. If we if we looked at our samples in the in the top part of the soil and then you know the top six or eight inches normal soil testing depth, the no-till fields almost always had a lot more organic matter in the top couple of inches because it would accumulate down there. But in the few studies that dug deeper and went down to two or three or four feet deep, those curves often cross over. So the deeper soils. That in, in the deeper soil, the conventional tillage might actually have a little more carbon down there. It's not a lot more, but it's a whole lot of soil. And when you add it all up, and in, in the, we don't have that many studies, but when we add it all up, it doesn't look like there's a huge difference. It looks like where the crops are growing, their roots change. Because if you're in a conventional till field and you're near the surface, it's getting hot and dry and crop roots can't survive very well near the surface, but no-till because it's moist and it's shaded and it's covered, allows the roots to grow nearer the surface. So there's a difference in, in rooting depth. And I think in conventional rooting, we get more roots down, down here. So that was kind of a shock to the NRCS who'd been promoting uh, no-till by itself as a carbon farming 
putting, putting more carbon into the soil practice may not work, but I think cover crops make a big difference. Uh, we've been trying to look deeper in the soil, and the reason, of course, that there's not so much information about what's going on two, three, four, or five, six feet in the soil is that it's really hard to do. It's, well, if you've ever taken soil samples, you can imagine it's a lot more work. But we've been trying to do this in various ways. Now, this is some, some of our work from a few years ago where we're, uh, and maybe you've had some of your soils tested for active carbon. This is a test that we developed in Maryland uh, long about, it's been almost 17, 18 years now. Uh, they've developed it quite a bit. Uh, if you send samples off to the Cornell Soil Health Testing Lab, they use it. It's used all over the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a very easy thing to do. You could even do it yourself. But it, it's measuring the part of the organic matter that's turning over rapidly, that's active, that's feeding the, the uh, microbes in the soil and not the part that's, that's more stable. So it's this sort of leading indicator. And this is going down. Uh, this is in centimeters, so that's a meter, so it's a little more than three feet deep. And you can see that uh, where we have a cover crop here, and this is, you'll see a lot of radish cover crops because I guess you probably know that I've worked with radish for quite a long time. Uh, actually introduced it, I think, to, to North America. Uh, you can see that there was uh, increases in the surface and also down, uh, down deep. Now, I would have liked to look deeper, but uh, that's as deep as we were able to go there. When we added it all up, we found that both nitrogen and cover crops increased the amount of root exudates that were contributing to this active carbon in the upper three feet. So we were putting more carbon out in the upper, you know, three and a half feet of soil. So a lot of this is happening down deep uh, in, the, in the profile. Uh, and this interacted with nitrogen, and most of this was nitrogen that was put on the corn, and the corn roots were growing deeper and you were getting more corn roots, so part of this was uh, interacting with the corn and cover crop. So, in, in Maryland, uh, we have this funny practice, and I wasn't really, hadn't really thought about it. Uh, but one of my grad students back in 2010 or 2011 uh, drove by one of our fields. He said, right, you ought to come out and look at this. You know, we had had a cover crop experiment where we were trying to look at nitrogen response rates. And she said, there's some funny patterns out there in the barley. So this was on a dairy farm, and this... Uh, it had been in corn silage and, and some cover crops, and we had put nitrogen plots out. So we had cover crop strips, and then we divided them into nitrogen plots. And when we were done with the experiment, we went on our merry way, and the farmer planted barley all over it uh, after the silage harvest. And you could see, along about uh, October here, you could see the outlines of our old plots that we had put on the corn in the barley. So here you can see a strip that didn't have any nitrogen on it. And you can see these boundaries, there's right there. That was one of the nitrogen plots, that's a nitrogen plot. You can kind of see them right across there in the barley. Well, that's not good, is it? This was nitrogen that was applied as a side dress in June to corn silage. Got about 22 tons of corn silage off of it. Pretty decent yield. When I measured the barley in those green stripes, you see the stripe stripe effect? Those stripes were five feet apart. Well, what he had done is he had side-dressed every second row. So if the corn doesn't need to have nitrogen on both sides, he put a heavier rate on every second row, right? So it was kind of like a tracer, inadvertent tracer experiment. So we had a row with nitrogen and a row without nitrogen. And then I started looking at this, and I see this all over the state, wherever farmers are doing this every second row, you see this striping in the cover crops. What's that telling us? There's an awful lot of that fertilizer that's left over that the corn didn't use. In fact, when we measured, so I, I went and we, we harvested the, the strips that were green and the strips in between, and the amount of extra nitrogen was more than half of what had been put down was being captured by that cover crop. Well, it tells us two things. One thing, it's a good thing we had a cover crop. Because if we didn't, we would have lost it. But it also means that we weren't, so, we weren't so great on our nitrogen management. And this was under Maryland's mandatory nutrient management plan. So this farm had a nutrient management plan, a pretty conservative nutrient management plan. I think we're overdoing nitrogen on a lot of our farms. I'm not saying you don't need to fertilize anymore. But you've built up a level of nutrients and a level of organic matter and cycling that you're getting 
150, 200 bushel yields off the check plot, you've built up some pretty good soil. So this uh, led me to be more interested in what was going on deeper in the, in the ground. If there was that much nitrogen left over just from the side dressing, I'm thinking there must be a lot. And the other thing that bothered me is when we would plant some of these, especially the brassicas that had these very fast root growth, it really grew quick in, in, uh, in, in fall. On these fertile soils, we were pulling up, you know, sampling it and measuring 150, 200. I've measured as high as 350 pounds of nitrogen in the cover crop at Thanksgiving. Well, that worried me too. Good Lord, that's a heck of a lot of nitrogen. Now these were early planted cover crops, so they could get down there, but that's telling me that there was an awful lot of nitrogen washing around in that profile someplace. If I hadn't had a cover crop on there, I mean, no wonder the Gulf of Mexico has got a problem. So I decided I need to take a look at this. So we've uh, been working on this project, looking at uh, deeper nitrogen in the, in the last few years. And rather than have a kind of an inadvertent tracer, decided to put a real tracer in there. So there's nitrogen in the area breathing right now, and almost all of it is N14. But some of those molecules are N15. They have an extra, an extra neutron. They're a little bit heavier atom. They're not, they're not radioactive. They're not toxic or anything. They're just a little bit heavier. So if you have the right instrument, and you can imagine this is an expensive instrument, they can tell the difference between an atom that has a neutron more or less, but you basically, it's like firing bullets. And if you got a heavier bullet, it's gonna drop a little bit more. And so that, that's how the instrument works with the, with the atoms. So we uh, got this N15. It's not cheap, comes in little bottles. It's nine, this is potassium nitrate, 99% N15. And we augered holes down about seven feet in the ground, a little over two meters. And we placed a pipe down there and we made a solution to this and put it in. So we placed this nitrate to simulate the leftover nitrogen at different depths in the soil. And then filled it in with bentonite clay so that nothing could grow down that hole and uh, planted a cover crop over the top of it. Uh, this is uh, Nate uh, Richards. He's not an extension agent. He was a graduate student at the time. He's carefully pouring some of this tracer down, down the tube. And this is some of the data we got uh, when we planted the cover crop over it. Now we, we're trying to get an idea of how early do you have to plant cover crops <clears throat> to get the roots down there to capture some of this nitrogen before it's on its way to the Chesapeake Bay or the Gulf of Mexico. And fortunately, this is a really precise technique. The instrument can detect any variation where you get it. If you've picked up a little bit of that tracer, you'll know you got there. So this is some of the results here. This is at four feet, six feet, two feet, and where we didn't plant any tracer. Where we, didn't, where we didn't put the tracer, fortunately, this is the nitrogen in the cover crop foliage, okay? And in, 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 in the tuber of the, of, the, of the radish. So we had uh, clover, we had rye, and we had uh, radish tops and, and tubers. And there was no signal, fortunately, where we didn't put any. That, that's good. At two feet, uh, the clover never got anything because it was crimson clover and it was going to grow in spring. It didn't grow much in fall. But the, but the rye and radish, you know, picked up a lot of nitrogen from two feet deep and uh, picked up some from four feet deep, too, especially the radish. The rye just barely got down there. And this is so precise that I don't think it got a lot of nitrogen from down at six feet deep, but the roots did get down there. So when we, when we harvested this cover crop material, and I think December 5th is when we, when we harvested this, just before the radish winter kill, uh, we did show that that radish was able to get roots down to uh, six feet deep and pick up some nitrate. Now these were planted pretty early. They were planted in late August, so the last week of August. So where you're in a dairy farming region, that's an easy, easy thing to do. Now, uh, this is the late planting. We planted it a month later. It, we did still pick up some from two feet deep, but none of the deeper stuff. So the timing is really critical, and we're, there's, we think, just based on how much these early cover crops take up, that there's a lot of nitrogen out there that we're not managing. 
I mean, that's a resource. What's two or 300 pounds of nitrogen worth per acre? Not to mention all the havoc it's gonna cause when it gets in the wrong place. And if we can't get the cover crops in earlier, I don't think we can go down and get that deep nitrogen. A pound of nitrogen that you pulled up from six feet deep is worth a lot more than a pound of nitrogen you pulled up from one foot deep. Because that shallow nitrogen is probably still gonna be there in spring. But the stuff from four or five feet deep, that was, if you didn't get it in fall, you're not gonna get it. So we started looking at the, at the water that's moving through the soil. We put in these suction lysimeters which suck the water out of the big pores. That's the water that's draining down during the winter. <clears throat> and uh, some preliminary work, we always found that uh, where we had the early planted radish, that water, this is in spring, the radish has been dead for months. But the water down here at about four feet deep is still much cleaner than it is where there wasn't a cover crop. You can see why cover crops are an important environmental uh, practice. We went out and put 45 of these suction lysimeters in a bunch of students. And this just shows how the, the water in those larger pores gets sucked in. You put a, a vacuum on this and you let it sit for about an hour and it slowly pulls the water in that, that was in these larger pores. So we, uh, <coughs> we, we had large plots, uh, sprayer width plots, 300 feet long. Uh, with no cover, with just rye, that cereal rye, uh, with, with just radish, and with a mixture. This is a mixture that works real well for us, where we have these early covers, where the brassica goes down and gets these nutrients, and then it dies, then it passes it on to the cereal rye. Ryegrass would work as well. And the clover, of course, comes on and adds some more nitrogen in, in spring. And we did this uh, planting in mid-September and in late September. Uh, this is just what it looks like when we're putting these in the ground. Uh, we've got these little pumps. See it's all sealed up. Lots of nice earthworm activity here. It's a no-till field. There's a dead radish. Uh, some crop residue. And these cover crops really work. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I think this actually, this data was in Farm Journal a couple of months ago when they did a story on Trey Hill's farm and put that, uh, that data in there. It didn't seem to matter which cover crop. Even though the radish was long dead, this is, this is spring, winter and spring, February, March, and all the way through the middle of April, uh, before you get planting, this, is, this water moving through the soil is a whole lot cleaner. This is taken from about four feet deep. So <clears throat> without a cover crop, there's a lot of variability, but it was way higher in, in nitrate. We also looked at the total nitrogen. So nitrate is usually what people measure when they talk about uh, leaching and plant uptake. But there's a lot of soluble nitrogen, in, especially in no-till soils with cover crops, that's not part of the nitrate. It's, it's small organic amino acids and proteins and small soluble organic uh, forms. Uh, there's some controversy as to whether plants take these up. I don't think they contribute a lot to your crop, but they are a form in which nitrogen is moving through the soil. So we digested these and measured those in there and pretty much the same story. This is logarithmic now, so this is about almost 50 to 100 times higher in this total organic uh, nitrogen without a cover crop than with the, with the same cover crops. But not much effect on the soluble organic phosphorus. So there was some soluble organic phosphorus moving through much lower levels. Remember this is 10, 1, 0.1, 0.01. Uh, milligrams per liter of parts per million. So we've been working on this deep nitrogen thing and, and there's different ways to get these cores, these samples. Uh, we have an old Giddings probe that's kind of rickety but it still works. So you can push it down by hydraulics. But you get to a point where it just picks the tractor up. We, we are in our coastal plain soils, we've got some pretty tight B horizons and we can just never get more than about three feet deep and it just picks the tractor up. There's not much you can do at that point. Uh, so we were, we were doing um, a lot of this work at about three, three feet deep here. So it started with three feet and I, this is the reason why I wanted to go a little bit deeper. If you're taking the nitrogen out of the soil and it's in the plant now and I can measure it in the, in the cover crop, I should find less in the soil, right? So in this case, there was about 150 units of nitrogen 
pounds per acre in the cover crop tissue. But when we looked in the top three feet of soil, we could only find about 40 pounds missing. What, what, the, what this data is, the, these are actually mostly weeds, winter weeds, and these are cover crops. So the, the best cover crops took up about 150 pounds of, of nitrogen. And where they did that, there was about 80 pounds of soluble ammonia nitrate left in the soil compared to 120, so about 40 pounds missing. So that's, a, you know, what happened to the other 110? Where did it come from? Well, I'm thinking, well, maybe some of it came from deeper than three feet. These are deep samples now. <laughs> maybe I got to go deeper. One of the good things uh, about this deep sampling is that it lets you know the, where the nitrogen is makes a difference. One of the problems with ryegrass and cereal rye, if you don't put enough nitrogen on in spring, you're gonna have an embarrassment of a corn crop, right? So these cover crops, they're great at capturing nitrogen, but they hold on to it. It's not just the carbon to nitrogen ratio, it's just that they don't decompose very quickly, and it's a long time before you get it back. There has been one long-term study, people ask me this question, well, when will I get that nitrogen back? You know, the, the ryegrass or the triticale, they took it up, it's immobilized. I, I've learned the hard way that if I don't add extra nitrogen, I'm not going to get a decent start to my corn crop. But that nitrogen's still there. When am I going to get it back? So there was, there was one study I saw in the literature that looked at this over a period of about 15 years. And slowly, it takes about 10 years before you no longer see that immobilization. That's a... That, the nitrogen's coming out of that old cover crop residues fast enough to make up for what's going back in. So it's going to take a while. But in the short term, this is what the kind of distributional change that we, that we see. Uh, the green is where the, you have dead radishes, and they release the nitrogen right away, maybe too early. But it's released at the surface of the soil. It's pulled up from three, four feet deep, brought to the surface, where there wasn't a cover crop, that nitrogen, a lot of it was down deeper, a couple of feet deep, 60, 70 centimeters. So you're taking, in this case, it was about 35 pounds or kilograms of nitrogen per, per acre uh, that was brought up to the surface. And you see that when you, look at your, uh, when you look at your corn after these different cover crops. So we've been working on this project in the, in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, and this slogan came up with, and I think this kind of captures the idea. If you got this nitrogen, if we really have a lot of nitrogen that we're not managing, that we're losing, that may explain why we have all these bad results, why we still have eutrophication in the Chesapeake Bay, why we still have these dead zones, and why we're spending so much on nitrogen fertilizer. Now, one thing about the mixtures, I imagine all of you have been using mixtures now, right? Cocktails, mixtures, whatever you call it. It's pretty hard to define what you're going to get, isn't it? You, you try to adjust the seeds for what you think is going to compensate, but what you plant and what you get are two different things. And that's one of the beauties of the mixture is that these different species will be able to adjust to the conditions, right? I mean, simple, uh, for instance, if you've got legumes and grasses, if you have a high nitrogen condition with manure, you're not going to get much legume growth. You get a lot of grass growth. If it's the other way around, you're going to get the opposite in terms of the biomass produced. This was showing the effect of planting date on this uh, mixture that includes brassica, includes radish, uh, triticale in this case, and crimson clover. And then we kept track of the weeds as well. Uh, <coughs> and you can see that the proportions, the same, same stuff was seeded, but the date that you plant completely changes the proportion of what grows, right? If you plant early at the right time in a high nitrogen environment, radish will outcompete. Turnips will do the same thing. These branches will compete almost everything. And Ray was talking about that. You don't want to have a lot of seed there. If you plant a little bit later, there's going to be a lot less competition. The later you go, uh, <clears throat> you find that the, the, the radish here is just about a third rather than about 90% of the, of the biomass. <clears throat> this is what it looked like when you harvest it and separate out the different species. So you can see the uh, early planting had a whole bunch of radish. Not so much triticale, you had more triticale when you planted later just because of competition. So that's one thing, when you're planting these different mixes, you can get the same mix, it's gonna be different on different fields and at different planting dates. 
You're just going to have to learn how to manage that. Uh, but partly the mixes will manage themselves. If you'd like to see the slides from Ray Wiles' presentation, go to no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast and click on this episode. We'll come back to his presentation in just a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to once again thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher level of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the presentation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Well, one of the things that keeps happening with no-tillers these days is the more use of precision agriculture and the things that go with precision farming. And within the next five years, we're going to see a tremendous increase in the use of precision tools. We're going to see more remote-driven machinery, more accurate placement of fertilizers and pesticides, look for infrared spot spraying of weeds, more variable rate farming with both seeding and fertilizer, and we'll probably see robotic seeders working in no-till fields. Plus, there will be other innovative precision tools that nobody's ever dreamed about today. Now let's get back to Ray Weil as he shares the optimal dates to plant cover crops, their effects on moisture retention, and how compaction influences deep root penetration. So in, in Maryland, we have a uh, the cover crop discussion always uh, tends to center around the Maryland cover crop program. We have one of the earliest and biggest investments in cover, public investments in cover crop subsidies. Not so sure I like this because it changes the focus. You know, the focus here is on what can cover crops do for our soil and for our farming system and, and trying to do it, you know, when you have a program that's paying pretty hefty subsidies. In Maryland, we pay, we used to pay up to $105 an acre. Uh, now the highest you can get is 95, but the, the, the base is about $45, so that's still pretty good. So what I'm getting at is the program requires two bushels of rye if you're going to plant rye or any other cereal. In other words, they're going overboard to make sure that there's a stand in the fall to capture nitrogen. The only point of the program is not a soil health program. It's a Chesapeake Bay water quality program, and it's all focused on catching nitrogen and keeping it on the farm. So this is what we would like. Uh, this is a dairy farm in Maryland. It's got a it's got a similar mixture of, uh, of uh, I think this is also triticale and radish and, and clover in there. Uh, <clears throat> most of what uh, because partly because it's uh, it's the cover crop you can plant latest. Partly because it's the cover crop that gets the biggest subsidy. Most of Maryland cover crops are cereal rye, and they're mostly planted in October. So you get very little growth in fall. You don't capture very much of that nitrogen. The nitrogen is moving down all winter long. So by March and April, this nitrogen that was released at the surface is now down below the root zone. And it's, this is like two meters deep, six feet deep, and you're losing a lot of it. In the meantime, the rye is growing in spring, or the rye grass or the triticale, whatever the, the grassy cover crop is and it's soaking up all the nitrogen and it's holding on to it. So it's actually it's kind of the opposite of what you want. You end up with a lot of nitrogen leaching and not much nitrogen available to your crop so that you have to add more nitrogen into the system, which is the opposite of what the program is actually after. So what I was arguing is that if we can get early brassicas in the mix and plant them early enough, we can go down and capture that deep nitrogen. So there are incentives now to plant earlier. You get paid more if you plant earlier. <clears throat> if we can go down and capture 100, 200, like I say, I've seen more than 300 pounds of nitrogen captured in the fall, depends on how much is there. Clean up that profile, 
The radish dies sometime in winter. It's mostly dead by now. Now you're going to lose some. I think a lot of it goes into the air, denitrification. But you end up with a fairly high nitrogen environment near the surface and very little uh, leaching, as we saw from those other graphs. So getting down to look below the three feet, the only way I could get down there was by hand. It was a 15-pound drop hammer. So this was great. Uh, didn't have to pay any, any gym bills, you know, gym membership or anything. We pounded these things down. It takes the core of soil all the way down to about seven and a half feet deep. We surveyed a bunch of farms and, and several regions in the mid-Atlantic to see if there really was that much nitrogen down there. And of course, each farm was different, but it doesn't matter how deep you took the sample, we found ammonia and, and nitrate, just mineral nitrogen I'm talking about, all the way down through the profile. Nitrate's probably moving through, and the ammonia has probably been sitting there for quite a while because it's cation especially on farms that have a history of manure sometime in the past, but even on sandy coastal plain farms. This is the averages of the first survey that we did. We had eight farms that were sort of fine textured soils in the hills and, and uh, six farms that were sandier soils on the coastal plain. And they were up around 300 pounds of nitrogen per acre. This is mineral, soluble, plant available nitrogen in the top, of course, we're going down to the top six feet, six and a half feet. So there is a lot of nitrogen out there, and I think we're only playing around with the stuff at the surface unless we can get these deep-rooted cover crops in early enough. Planting date makes a huge difference, but not quite as much as you might expect in terms of getting down deep, as you saw, if you're just a few weeks later, you're never going to get down there because the growing degree days are disappearing fast in fall. You need to have a little bit of warm weather, I think about 600 growing degree days to be able to get roots down deep. So the, uh, <clears throat> the dry matter drops off quickly. This is seeding. This is number of weeks after the middle of August. So this is into October. Drops off quickly. But the tissue nitrogen content increases. So these young plants are higher in nitrogen. So the total nitrogen that's captured is pretty steady in our conditions up to around October. After that, it drops off. You just don't have enough time to get, get established. So waiting for spring growth is not gonna do the job for capturing this deep nitrogen. We're gonna have to figure out how to get it on early. And I know you guys have come up with a lot of ways to do this. This is some growth curves for uh, radish with the uh, high nitrogen, low nitrogen environment. So, you know, just like crop growth curves, they got cover crop growth curves. Uh, this is uh, for Maryland. Lots of different ways you guys have been playing around with. Uh, Ray talked about a bunch of these in, in the last session. Really good, good ideas. We won't uh, go into that too much. I want to move on and talk about some of the physical things then. So that's kind of the nitrogen story. Uh, I was surprised to see how much nitrogen is out there, but that, that all the evidence was leading me to believe that it's there. So when we looked for it, we found it. So if you think about that, just as something to keep in the back of your mind, you probably have at least a couple hundred pounds and maybe three or four hundred pounds of nitrogen under each of your acres. Can you get that? Boy, that seems like a waste to not be able to get that. There's an incentive. Figure out how we can get down there. And we know that if you can get cover crops interseeded or in there early enough, you can clean that up. Maybe it's only something you want to do, you know, every three or four years. A lot of that nitrogen's ammonia, it's not leaving that quick. Maybe you want to put a small grain in your rotation. Those of you that are doing that know that it opens up a world of opportunity for cover cropping. If you grow wheat once in a while, now you can plant, you know, one of these wild mixes with all the summer uh, warm season and deep-rooted things in there. So this is uh, one of the issues we have with the uh, many soils, in fact, almost all, you know, all the soils, unless you've been no-tilling a long, long time with a lot of cover crops, you probably have some residual plow pan or clay plant pan down there, some kind of compacted layer, uh, either from traffic or from previous plowing. So this is a problem with, uh, with no-till. We see that a lot in the coastal plain. This is a study that I just happened to review. It was in cotton. 
in uh, no-till cotton hasn't advanced nearly as much. What they did show is that the cover crop had a bigger impact on yields with, uh, with no-till than it did with uh, conventional till, so that the cover crop no-till uh, was not significantly different from the conventional uh, uh, without the cover crop. But that's not the point I want to make. Uh, compaction is a big issue. Farmers are concerned with almost any kind of soil can compact. People with clay soils think it only happens in clay soils. People with sandy soils are no different. You can have some severe compaction with sandy soils. Uh, if you think about what, how you make concrete, what do you put into concrete? Yeah, sand and gravel, right? So if you've got a little clay to stick that sand together and you get it packed in right, you can get some real serious compaction. So compaction is an issue and you're not going to be able to get all that nitrogen, let alone the water that you need in the summer if your roots can't grow deep. Right? So they measure the effect here using a, a, a penetration resistance, a cone penetration. And this is the, the cone index is one way to show that. Now they're showing that in the cover crop had an impact in no-till but not in tillage. I think that they're probably misinterpreting this a little bit. I think the cover crop had a very minimal impact in both cases. This was a cereal rye in both cases. What you have to remember when you're doing the, how many of you have done this cone penetration measurement? Maybe you have one of those, you've had somebody come out. Have you had a, mach a machinery salesperson come out? To try to sell you a, a, a ripper or a bigger tractor to pull it? If you're going to sell somebody on this kind of equipment, when do you want to go out to the farm to make that sale? You want to go out when the soil is dry, when the plants have sucked most of the water out of the, the deeper soil at the plow pan. So fall is a good time, summer is a good time. These measurements measure two things. They measure the compaction, but they also measure the moisture. It's totally dependent on moisture. So you can see that this curve, this is soil water content, this is the penetration reading, in this case it's in uh, megapascals, but roots can't penetrate past, past about two, th two megapascals. But the point here is we got a high bulk density, compacted soil has been driven on versus a low bulk density and they both follow these curves. So that compacting the soil will increase this cone reading, but also drying the soil will have about the same effect. So drying this uncompacted soil from 27% moisture down to 20% moisture has the same effect on your cone reading. So never make a comparison unless you know the moisture is the same. So I think the problem with that cotton study was that the, uh, the moisture was a lot higher where you had a good cover crop and you had a mulch and you conserved moisture. And so of course it was easier to penetrate. I don't think they really did much about their compaction problem. I think they just had better moisture down there, which allows plants to push through the soil better. That's pretty much why cover crops are so good at this, is you, we're growing cover crops when the soil's wet. The cover crops are growing in early spring and fall when there's not a lot of evapotranspiration, not a lot of high temperature. So the soil is softer when the cover crops are there, plus we can try to grow cover crops that have a high pressure. Tap-rooted crops can push harder and get through more dense soils. So they did find that, uh, although I, this is a little questionable too, you can tell I wasn't too cool on this uh, particular paper. I would never say that there was a trend when you have three points and R squared of 0.99999, but they did show that the crop yield increase was proportional to the cover crop biomass. More biomass, the better the increase. So Steve is here. These are some of Steve's pictures. Steve Groff from Pennsylvania. Uh, he kind of took the, the radish and ran with it, for made a name for it. Uh, you know, we have this question of, do you really want to rip up no-till soils because you've had to drive trucks over it, had to drive harvest vehicles over it, manure spreaders over it, or can we use plants to do it? And when I brought Steve uh, the radishes, we did some research, a part of this on-farm research program back. I think it must have been about 2000, Steve. So it's been about 17 years now. Uh, we were looking at this compaction issue and it performed so well that Steve thought he would, instead of, he used to use a ripper. The only tillage he ever did was where his harvest trucks had really beat the soil up and he just ripped those tire tracks. So he created what he called the tillage ripper. 
there's a river, there's a radish, and that's a, excuse me, a radish river. So he just planted a few rows of radish in the tire tracks, and he said that worked just as well. So there was something about this radish, but we had to, being scientists, we had to figure this out, so we went to using these underground cameras. That's a lot of work too, because you have a compacted soil and you have to put a tube, it's about two inch diameter tube, you have to insert it into the soil. So you have to make the hole first and insert that. And then you can come in and take a look at what's going on down there. You can come back to it, watch the roots grow. And what we found is, sure enough, these brassica roots, this, this particular one's great. Uh, this was kind of the first one that was published on this. If you, if you take a look at that, this is the same soil. You can see the same cracks, the same soil. This is May 3rd, before we kill the cover crops. That's the rapeseed root that is pushed down. The soil's moist and it's created this channel. And then in the middle of summer, when the soil is dry and hard, soybeans would never have been able to push through that plow pan, except they followed the same path. This is the soybean root going down in, in summer. So this is the, the whole biodrilling thing is about these roots stay open, these root pathways stay open, the root dies, the pathway stays open, and then you'll get often multiple roots growing down this same hole. Serves very much the same kind of function as an earthworm channel. Now the, the radish and other cover crops that do this will reduce the uh, penetration resistance, even when the moisture is the same. This is done side by side, the same moisture. This is between the radish rows, that's within the radish rows. So I've had people measure bulk density on fields that have got radishes or turnips or other big rooted crops in it, and they say, oh, it increased the bulk density. Oh well, yeah, you've got this big root, it's gonna push the soil away, so if you're measuring between them, it's gonna be more dense, but you have to include the holes that, that they're making. So this is going down, uh, <clears throat> another way to do this is to measure the actual roots and to count them. So we, we break the core and the live root will be springing, it'll stick up and you can count them. The dead root will crack in half, it won't count it. So we can count just live roots this way. We go down and this is, uh, this is roots of corn growing after different cover crop treatments. And sure enough, we find you know, up here, the uh, brown line is, the, is cereal rye. You've got lots of corn roots following rye in the surface. But the ones that made it through the plow pan, there's an old plow pan there in no-till soil. You get about four or five times as many roots going deep after this brassica cover crop that opened up all these holes. So don't try this at home on your farm. But we wanted to look at this compaction. Uh, that was looking, we had been looking at sort of nat existing compaction from plow pans and natural compaction, but we wanted to get a handle on it. And it's always nice if you can create the situation you want. So for experimental purposes, we used the solid tired industrial tractor. So it really is the worst situation. Loaded the, loaded the bucket with rock to make it heavier, irrigated the soil to make it good and wet, <laughs> you know, was, and then drove back and forth on it and completely compacted the plots, okay? So now we knew it, where it was compacted and where it wasn't, all right. And sure enough, this is the uh, penetration resistance. That's the uncompacted plots. That's the, the one with uh, heavy compaction and medium was just fewer trips. And this is the bulk density. So we definitely affected it. And this is down to about uh, almost two feet deep. And then we took these cores and laid them out and counted the roots. And not all cover crops are created equal. <clears throat> this is uh, the radish. This is rapeseed. And this is cereal rye. And you can see lots of roots at the surface on the cereal rye, but they really had a hard time getting through that compacted soil and growing deeper in it. The radish uh, did much better. In the end, this results in a correlation between the number of cover crop roots that get down deep and the number of corn roots that get down deep. And in a dry year, that's gonna mean higher yields. This side-by-side uh, -side kind of tells the story of what's going on deeper. This is uh, cereal rye and forage radish from some of our research plots. It didn't rain that fall. We got them planted, they got up, no rain, sandy soils, got pretty dry. This is what they looked like. The rye was shriveling up from drought. The radish just was happy, wasn't showing any drought stress at all. 
because the radish roots had gotten a lot deeper and there's always moisture down there, unless you're in Colorado or someplace, in which case it's dry. But if you're in, if you're, you know, basically in the, in, if you can grow corn without irrigation, you're in a region where there's enough moisture that if you go deep enough, you'll find moisture. And so these cover crops will open the pathways for your crops to get down there. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. If you'd like to see the slides from Ray Wiles' presentation, go to no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast and click on this episode. You'll also find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies there too. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. One of the questions that comes up from readers is what's the best speed for uh, planting? And these days we've got uh, several new planters on the market that no-tillers are using that are high speed, as high as eight and nine and 10 miles per hour. Well, if you look back at some data from Calmer Farms in uh, central Illinois, they looked at planter speeds at 6.5 miles per hour and 4.5 miles per hour. And the difference from slowing down at that speed was a corn yield of 201 bushel per acre versus the higher speed at 200 bushel per acre. So slowing down only got them an extra one bushel of corn. But with more innovative planters on the market, we may see some more significant differences with high-speed planting. Thanks to Ray Wild for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please email me at mpawkner at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Faulkner. Thank you for listening.